I am hopeful that we will learn during this pandemic, because I think it's still during, I don't think it's over, Yeah, that we will learn that we didn't, as a, as a world, that we did not handle this right. And we will learn how to handle it right for the good of everybody, ourselves included. I mean, ourselves in the West, Europe, the US, Canada, countries that have, um, who have not done the right thing for the world or for their own people. And that we will learn from that so that we actually get out of this pandemic that we're in and also so that we are prepared for the next. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. And on this show, I sit down for meaningful conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, athletes, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you so much for showing up this week. I'm very glad you're here. This week, I have the honor of introducing you to my friend and incredible damn giver, Simon George. I met Simon a few months ago working with a bunch of scientists, doctors, and community organizers on a variety of COVID and pandemic-related projects. As soon as I met her, I felt immediately attracted to her passion and work. And over the past few months, it has been confirmed that Simon does indeed give lots of dams. Simon lives in Ireland and is a human rights lawyer, an activist, a TED speaker, and so much more. Her partner, Mark, is blind and paralyzed from the waist down. That is what their TED Talk is about, and you should go watch it immediately. It's a remarkable story of resilience and strength, and we talk about it a bit during our chat. Her family history is rich, and her brain and heart are full of wisdom. And I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. But before we get into it, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask me questions. You can tell me how much you love or hate the show. You can suggest future guests, whatever. I just love hearing from you. And I'll shut up now because it's time for us to get right into my conversation with the amazing Simon George. Let's go. I listened to your uh, podcast with Baratunde Thurston. Oh, nice. Who I met a few times through Ted. He's incredible. Um, So I learned in that that you were from a big family, but I also learned that you're from Guatemala. Yes. Yes. Well, I was, so I was, yeah, I was born in in upstate New York. My dad, you know, uh, he was born in Guatemala and then moved here when he was a kid. He actually ran away from home and then his family came after him. Okay. And then that's when they relocated to the U.S. And then when I was a kid, we moved back to Guatemala for 10 years. Wow. Um, I feel like Guata- I've been back in the U.S. for uh, 16 years. And I have not for one of those years have felt at home. Like it's a fine place to be. 
I'm not super patriotic. I have, you will find no American flags in my, on my clothes or in front of my apartment or anything like that. I'm not anti-patriot, but I just don't have that like loyalty that, you know, so I, I, I definitely see myself as a citizen of the world first uh, before I start naming which country I'm from. But I do feel most at home talking about Guatemala as my home because those were yeah. you know, very formative years, 10 to almost 20. Um, those are the very formative years, you know, yeah, when you're, yeah, you're totally. you know, prepubescent through, you know, through puberty. When you're figuring and, out who you are. Exactly. And yeah. I still have very, very fond uh, memories of growing oh, lovely. up. Lovely. I've, I've never been to Guatemala, but after I lived in, in Spain, because we had very few immigrants of any sort in Ireland, really, till the 1990s and onwards. Um, and uh, when I came back, I really missed my life in Madrid. And I started going to um, salsa clubs, Latino clubs here, which was where all the small Latino population in Ireland would gather and a lot of Africans you know it just was this place for dancing so I knew uh, uh, the four Guatemalans that were in Africa and or in Ireland and would say to them how many are you now and they'd say oh there's a fifth you know like they were oh, able to kind of keep track so my 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 uh, I speak Castellano Spanish but um, my only Guatemalan phrase I know uh, a friend said to me one night and then explained what it meant which was uh Hey, mami, como anda? Yeah. As a way of greeting a woman. Yes. In a very suggestive way. <laughs> In a very suggestive way. He explained it means you look great. You look, yeah. I think it yes. literally means how you are walking. Yep. 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 Yeah. How are you, how are you walking? Um, yeah. And you're, you're look, you're probably, they're probably looking at certain body parts and certain thinking certain things when they're saying that. Yes. I've, I've heard, I mean, there's, not that American men are not cat callers, but the Latino uh, culture, uh, it's, I mean, you can't walk anywhere yeah. as, as a woman, especially if you're a, a attractive, beautiful woman without, I mean, just every five feet, it's, it's kind of, it's disturbing <laughs> among other things. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I loved growing up in Guatemala, just beautiful food and the, the country and, That'll be one of the first places that we take our our children are now at a better. We could have taken them earlier to start traveling overseas. I've spent time in many parts of the world. I I feel much more comfortable on a plane going to a foreign country than I do here in the U.S. And we've we've we thought about taking them on trips earlier on. And we're like, let's just wait till they can fully or at least a little more. They can appreciate what's going on a little bit more. You know, if we're going to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars traveling. Let's wait till they're at an age where they're yeah. really understanding what's going on. And so Guatemala will be one of our first trips where we can, uh, yeah, I can take them back to my neighborhood and uh, nice. the, the, where I used to, you know, go grocery shopping with my mom and the volcanoes we used to climb and where I almost got uh, 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 shot. Um, and here's where we almost got kidnapped. And there's a lot of stories we I'll be able to tell oh, yeah. when no, I when I take my kids there. Um. Simon, George, so wonderful to have you on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Um, I know we've already been talking for a few minutes. I'll probably include some of that because it was really good stuff. But I guess we're officially uh, beginning our conversation right now. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you for making time, oh. I Ireland time, uh, late in the evening there. Thank you. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a treat. You and I have been, uh, well, we've known each other for, I don't know, five, six months at this point. 
we worked on a variety of projects around uh, this this horrific virus that we've all been uh, fighting in varying degrees over the last year and a half. And you and I have uh, worked with specifically with organizations like End Coronavirus, the COVID Action Group, and now the the newly formed World Health Network. Um, how did you? So talk to me. Let's let's begin with this. So I'm I'm in the U.S. You're in Ireland. What's been your experience the last year and a half? Because many of the listeners are from North America. We do have listeners all over the world, but many are from uh, you know th- this part of the world. So talk about Ireland specifically. Talk about the last eighteen months. How are you? How uh, out of your mind are you? How how you know looking forward to getting back to normal? And it just doesn't look like that's anytime soon. Um, how did you get involved in this work of working on COVID? What does that look like? Just kind of explain. We'll get to your like actual like story and history here in a moment, but specifically with as it relates to COVID and this pandemic, what's been going on in your life in that regard? Because that's how we met and have been working the last yeah. few months. Yeah. How am I? Goodness, as uh as Americans say, this isn't my first rodeo. So I've been through some really difficult years, some crisis years. And so in a strange way, when this happened, when the first lockdown happened last March in 2020, um, I was as shocked and confused as everybody else, but hmm. turned around pretty quickly. I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my, with my partner, Mark, um, and realizing that all of our work was traveling, a lot of it in the US, a lot of our, our work is around the world. Um, I'm a litigator. I'm a, what Americans would call a trial attorney. So in court, in these rooms often that don't have windows and um, and uh, public speaking. And and uh, we also have a running event that, that, that funds the work we do to cure paralysis. Um, and so we sat at our table and we were doing that laughing that you only do when yeah. you're in terrible tragedy and yeah, right. Irish people Irish people have been through hundreds and hundreds of years of terrible tragedy uh, so we we do that very well and we were we were crying laughing at how, how bad this could possibly be for personal and professional reasons and but very quickly realized we needed to engage things that we knew how to do having been through a crisis before so we knew we had to turn this around very quickly we had to not be optimistic nor pessimistic neither of those things are useful to you but to run acceptance and hope in parallel so accept that we would be locked down for the foreseeable for maybe a year or two years, we straight away were looking at Christmas 2021, which- So you were thinking, yeah, you were thinking mm, that even at the beginning. Yeah, completely at the beginning. And we we know to do that. I know to do that now, given uh, some things we've been through before, but also then reading about that, reading um, books by, you know, Viktor Frankl, who spent years in a concentration camp when, they, they didn't know when they would be liberated or if they would be liberated or if he would die before they were liberated. Um, Admiral Stockdale, we talk about, um, about often. And so you must accept the brutal facts of your, reali- of, of your reality where you are now mm. and never lose faith in the end of your story. 
So hope and acceptance together, neither of those things are optimism. And they're certainly not pessimism. Pessimism has no hope in it. It's it's cynical. But so we we straight away moved our running event um, online, figured out how we would do that. I set up to work from from home with my with my clients and figure out how I would do that. And we then went into dealing with, you know, the personal things. And for me, it was was quite a big thing in that my mother was uh, being treated for cancer. So as a family, we also had this very immediate engagement with what this meant for the health system and what it meant for ultimately for how, how we would grieve for her. So she passed away. She passed away. So she went back into hospital. Her her medication that she was on was, it seemed, was making her unwell. And mm. we brought her into hospital and they said, we just need to get her weight up. We need to um, uh, adjust her medication and she'll come home again. And we were able to visit a couple of times and then full lockdown happened and we didn't see her for two weeks except over FaceTime and could see that she was deteriorating but mm. couldn't really get an answer from them. And um, they then said that they were going to give her further treatment and it might buy her another year. And so we set up the house to bring her home and look after her at home, knowing that we wouldn't be able to have nurses in and out. You know, if you remember back at that stage, we didn't understand anything about this nope. or even how to how to do pandemic, <laughs> how to pandemic, you know, what it would mean. But we we she had an adapted uh, bathroom in the house's uh, bungalow, you know, it's on the ground floor. And we figured out how to do all of that, keep the kids away from her for, for us to get equipment. But um, they then called us about 24 hours later and said, no, in fact, she's she's dying. And under the palliative care rules, we could we could go back in. So my my sisters and I sat by her bed day and night for about uh, three or four days. And then the rules changed again. And the three of us had to choose uh, which one would stay. The hospital said one of you can stay, but that person cannot leave until she's gone. And so that that became me. You know, uh, I'm not sure we figured out really which was the short straw. I think I, in the end, got um, the best deal because while being locked in with her um, as she was dying was really on my own, was very difficult. I cannot imagine what it was like for my sisters at home just waiting for for me to call. So uh, it was, yeah, it was it was very difficult. And, And since then, you know. I can tell you a bit more about what what Ireland as a whole has been like. But since then, I think I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, she's an incredible person. She's a psychotherapist, uh, Ivana. And she said, uh, we haven't seen each other for the last 18 months of this. And she said, how are you? And I said, you know, all these other things have happened too. And I said, I think it's a big grief locker. You can't properly grieve. You cannot properly deal with trauma until it ends. Yeah. And it hasn't ended. No. Nope. So great vaccine uptake in Ireland. The the predicted by the living with COVID strategy, the predicted end to this, most people taking uh, the vaccine would mean that this pandemic would end is not the truth, you know. And so it's it's ongoing. We 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 fight on. And I, I think it's only after that you can have really the true reckoning of of how you are. 
Yeah, grief locker. I mean, that's a that's a very interesting word picture, and I feel that. That's the way I have felt is there are so many things that have happened over the last year and a half that after this is truly over, could be a year from now, whenever we're truly uh, back to normal, air quotes, there's going to be some a serious need for um, therapists and counselors and for us to be honest and vulnerable with our partners and our friends and our, you know, our children and vice yeah. versa. Because there is, I mean, nothing has been normal the last 18 months. I, well, actually, let me stop real quickly. I'm so sorry for your loss. I wanted to say that uh, there's no good time to do that. That's but that's, okay. That's, that's okay. Du- but during all this, that's such a hard yes. thing to have to go through. And again, you, speaking of grief locker, there will probably be another version of you grieving and processing through that once this is all over because you just can't, you got to, yeah, it's like you're in this crisis and you've got to just, uh, uh, just soldier on, right? Yeah. And just keep pushing forward. And so I'm, uh, you know, as much as I'm excited to figure out what's after this and I want us to get through this and I want people to shape the fuck up and like do the right thing so we can get beyond this whatever's beyond this is still going to be hard because it's going to be us, you know, figuring like both personally and societally and culturally, and then globally, right? We live in different parts of the world, but what, what happens to y'all and what you do affects us as well. And vice versa, probably because we're a bigger, more obnoxious country, like uh, us more than you all, but still it's like what we do doesn't just affect us. It affects people all over the world. And so we've got a lot of processing and changing of structures and laws and, to, to make sure that we're a more equitable people, society, you know, in culture and world after this, because for sure we've seen so many different inequities and, and vulnerabilities exposed. Um, yeah. I, I hope we're taking good account of that because we've got work to do now in like right now, but also as, as we're able to do more, as things open up, as this thing dies down in the next, in these next months or years, however long it takes, We've got work to do. Well, and and we must. We're obliged to, as Maya Angelou said, we do the best with the tools we have. And when we have better tools, we are obliged to do better. Yeah. And we have learned so much in what has happened, in, in the good and in, in the bad response to this. And we are obliged to do better as opposed to doubling down and justifying some really inequitable decisions. And I I hope locker is the right way to describe that. When I, when I say grief locker, maybe there's a better other word. I don't mean bottling it up or mm-hmm. denial or not processing. I'm, I really believe in process. I believe in having conversations with friends and family. I believe in crying when you need to. Yep. I try and live all of that. But we know that you you can't really process trauma while it's happening. And, and for, for example, it isn't, I don't think it's that helpful right now to encourage children to start unpacking what last year was like for them. Exactly. More than they need to, to push them on that. When they're going back into school in September and there might be another uh, lockdown, right? Because children are mostly unvaccinated and... And, and there's so many things we haven't learned yet to, to keep them safe. So they are hopefully in this process of hope and acceptance. I accept I can't go for a sleepover at a friend's house or that I might be pulled out of school on Monday. Yeah. But I'm hoping that I get to 
you know, go to the beach on Saturday or whatever their thing in their lives is, or that this gets better. And uh, to just help them in that in that place. And I think we have to do that for each other. Yeah, that's super helpful. Uh, great clarifier, because yes, I have, I have cussed out loud, I have cried, I have yelled, I have done all the things throughout this last year and a half. Um, I've gotten angry, I have, you know, mourned, and you're, you're right, we've got to do those things. Bottling it up is not the answer, but you're so right. Anybody that's in the middle of being, a you know, any sort of trauma, it, you can't deal with it ho- holistically until you're out of it, until you're, you're out of it. And so, yes, we have a lot to look forward to. And it, it, what you just brought up was, is one of the, the main reasons why I started Let's Give a Damn was the, when you said we're obliged to, right? You don't know what you don't know. But the but the emancipator William Wilberforce said, like you, you can never unknow what you now know. Now that you've been exposed to it, you can never unknow that. You now know it, and so if you choose to not figure out if you have a role in fixing this, you're you're just acting in willful ignorance, which is why we're in the place we're in now on yeah. so many issues. Is people know what the right thing to do. So you can still choose to do that. And millions and hundreds of millions of people will do that. They will continue to remain in willful ignorance. But my hope is that you and I and many others can, you know, pr- you know, prod people along in ignoring, you know, in in rejecting uh the idea of going toward willful ignorance and actually, you know, succumbing to this call to to you're obliged to do something now. Again, you can't do it all. We can't save, we can't save ourselves. You know, m- nevertheless, like you know, much less a bunch of people or a whole system or a whole structure. But we can do something. You yeah. know, and, and we've got to do something as we, you know, based on all the things we've learned over this mm. last eighteen months. And I think in that, and this is really difficult for every movement from for every for every movement for lgbt people for for women for black lives matter for um all of those those movements is that for you sometimes have to facilitate people who are willfully ignorant in learning how to apologize and then to restore so to then repair in whatever way because that's one of the biggest blocks. So already in, in, in the pandemic where we've had these big spikes, you then have, whether it's politicians or people in the science world, when, when they've had to do a U-turn, let's say on aerosol transmission, sort of denying the, that, first of all, denying that they knew that before. You know, we said, let's open up at Christmas. We did not realize right. 2,000 people would die as they did in Ireland. And of course, they realized before they were told and everything's documented now, you know, like science journal articles, maybe that weren't accessible years ago or on the Internet or they're being shared. People who are aren't from those disciplines are reading them and are able to understand them. Communication around science has got so much better as in learning to communicate from your area of expertise to people, to lay people who, who don't do that work. So the evidence has been there from the beginning, but it wasn't acted on. What you then see is this doubling down. You know, let's really put our faith in the vaccine, even though Israel and and, uh, Iceland, you know, these 
canaries in the coal mine or in the bunker, if you will, um, are saying, look, we're a really well vaccinated population ahead of most other countries in the world. And we're having these breakthrough infections and we're um, seeing these drops in, in efficacy to to not to encourage them to know our leaders to know that it is safe for them to say okay we need to we need to change course yeah what we've been doing isn't working and and we're sorry about that and we're going to try something we're going to try something better we now have these better tools and to encourage people who don't have the capacity to speak like that or to think like that to do so super helpful i love that I love that. We're, we've jumped into so many things already, um, I, and we have so much to get into. I, I want to start with your story, and here's what I mean by that. I always love to get some history. Uh, I want to hear about you know where you're from and who are the people, places, and things that shaped you, because it's so important. That you know, before we started recording, I won't bring up exactly what we were talking about, but these. These people that come before us, our parents and our aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents, the, 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 the trials and tribulations they endured to get to where, you know, we're, but we both have, you know, immigrant backgrounds, uh, you know, coming from other, you know, other places. Um, there's always these like little things that come up that I'm like, oh, that's why Simon is the way that, you know, so Simon is and the work that she got into and all that stuff. So why don't you go back as far as you want? I know just the little bit I do know seems very fascinating with, you know, your grandmother and, uh, you know, fascinating things that have happened to bring you to the place where you live today doing the work that you're doing, you know. Uh, so why don't you start there? Give us as much or as little as you want, but just tell us the who, what, when, where, and why of uh, Simone's life. <laughs> okay. So I was I was born in Dublin, in Ireland, in the capital city, just outside uh, a lovely place called Kalini, which is by the beach. And my Irish father was from the beach. He was born in a tiny cottage. Well, he was, in fact, born in a wooden chalet beach hut next to the tiny cottage because the family was so big. There was no room for his his mother um, who was in labor. And wow. uh, yeah, so he was born on this this house uh, at this house um, that was built on on stilts, really on, on the beach. And uh, but he we've we've his family have a Dutch surname. So we think, you know, really hundreds of years before that they they came from from the Netherlands there. And he had a grandmother who was German as well, who was a governess in one of, at the time we were still colonized by the British in one of the big houses up on the road. And his um, grandparents lived in the, the carpenters and the governess's cottage, like the workman's cottages. And they, they, they bought out the lease there. So I was born close to there, but my, my mother came to Ireland in the 1960s to go to school when she was 14 and was one of, very few people of color in a very white mono uh, religious um, uh, Ireland, and so she, when she met my dad and married him, this was this was kind of unusual, you know. So I remember as a child walking down the street with my mom and people stopping and asking her where she got her suntan, and you know, and then they would find out where she where she was from, you know, just this general curiosity about her 
but she was born in in northern Nigeria in a place called Kano. So she's a native Hausa speaker, which is the the tribe in northern Nigeria. But her father was Lebanese from Beirut, and her mother, which is you know a story like something like out of the English um, patient. Her mother was born in the heart of the Sahara Desert, a place that the French, when they colonized the country that's now was called by them Niger. Uh, she was born into a tribe called the Tubu, which are sister tribe to the Tuareg, you know, the Bedouin people who are the indigo sure. rats yep. and are, are traders. She, she was born into uh, the Tubu tribe um, by this oasis in a place called Bilma, in the, the, the French called the Rien, the Rien, the nothing of nothing. It was so remote and hot and awful <laughs> for them decided to colonize it anyway. So she was she was born when her mother was probably forced into a relationship with a French mm. soldier. So she was the, the, the product of colonial rape, you might call it now. Mm. You know, it's again, these things are tricky in families about really, under, really understanding what happened. But my grandmother, when she came to live with us in Ireland, when she was in her 80s, and I... Uh, recorded some of her stories and I said to her uh, Tata was it uh, Tata's Arabic for grandmother is it true that your mother married your father and she said to me elle était toujours dans les mains de ses parents which in in French is she was still in the hands of her parents but what she showed me was a child holding hands with her parents when the French came and so because she was born to an African mother and a French father, the French government had this sort of policy, as we've seen all around the world, of um, sort of a form of ethnic cleansing cleansing or whitening of the people that were born to the, the colonizers. So she was stolen from her mother and trafficked by the French government to a boarding school they took her three months by camel train to a boarding school on the, the coast of West Africa. They changed her name to a French name, to Leonie, and they raised, changed her religion from Islam to, to well, their version of Islam, the Tubu people have, um, to Catholic and French speaking. Yeah. And then when she was 17 and finished school, they weren't going to bring her back to her family if they could find them in the desert. And they uh, tried to marry her off to an old man. And she said, no, she was having none of it. And her and her friend insisted on training to be midwives. And so one of my favorite stories of hers is we used to walk from village to village delivering babies. Simon, they were in the days before we had bicycles. That's hilarious. That's amazing. The same same woman would ask me, you know, how does a fax machine work? I remember once right. going, how do I, how do you jump? How do you, you know, span a life that's been 104 years and through, you know, pre-colonial Africa, through through all of those things. So she was she was an incredible uh, woman, and as were her her children. We grew up with a very rich um, food culture. Uh, the thing that everyone remembers most, but this really, really strong sense of justice and fairness and what is right and acting on what you know to be right, you know, to 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 speak up. Yeah. So that was my that was going to be my next question was this very rich history, you know, people, very resilient, strong people that, you know, endured some really 
crazy shit at times in some interesting circumstances. Yeah. So you obviously give, to use my terminology, you give a lot of dams and you care about a lot of things and people. Um, so that was obviously, it seems like at least in part, that was passed down to you from people who also gave a damn, from people that, you know, went the extra mile that, you know, cared about things and went after them. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that you say it, that mattered more to my mother than anything else that mattered more than me getting a degree in college that mattered more than any other marker of success or identity or who you are as a person was giving a damn and then saying it, you know, I would run. I'm not sure this is really a good thing, but if a bomb went off five streets away, really the sensible human thing to do is to run in the other direction and get away with from whatever trouble that is. Right. My 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 instinct that was passed down is to go towards it and, and see see if anyone needs help and see see what's going on. So it might get me killed one day. But that was that was definitely that was definitely passed down in our in our family. It's they're the women especially are ferocious. Ooh, ferocious women. I love that. I love that idea that now that you just presented, because that truly is a, a, a marker of someone who gives a damn, um, is someone who, when the bomb goes off, what do you do, right? When the bomb, whatever that bomb is in life, like, what do you do? It's not bad for you to run the other way. Like we have this, we have this instinct of self-preservation and I want to live as long as I can. I got to take care of my people, but there are people there are those kinds of people that whether it was, you know, thrust upon them by family and history or they've learned it, that when that goes off, they run toward it to see how they can be of help. And you're right. You're right. It might kill you someday, like physically, uh, you know, mentally, emotionally, because it's hard work. Um, and obviously giving a damn means a million different things. It can mean holding a door for somebody, saying a kind word, and it can mean giving your life. Yeah. In in a, in a moment of hardship, you know, actually giving your physical life for someone else. And it's everything in between. Um, I, I, I want to think that I'm the person who uh, would run toward, you know, the bombing to see if anybody could help. But uh, and I, 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 I've had certain situations like that in my life and I, where I've ran toward the bomb. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I don't say that in a way that I think it's virtuous at all because it's an it's an instinct it's a sure. and it it also probably is inherited trauma because it's hypervigilance you know it's sort of you're watching all of the time you know Agreed. and and you're you're concerned all of all of the time i remember at the end of my grandmother's life when she had sort of in and out of dementia you know it manifests itself in different ways in different people some people become very calm some people become very aggressive with alzheimer's and things like that when 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 she was bad she would say um this is terrible that she was blind as well she lost her sight in her 80s so the last 20 years of her, her life she couldn't see and, and that also does things to along with, you know, the yeah. mental health struggle. But she would say, um, we've come to nothing. Look at us here. And I'd say, Tata, where are we? And she'd say, we're in this sort of refuge and we're waiting for them to let us in and we've we've come to nothing. And then she'd always throw in the dig and none of you speak French. Uh. You know? And I'd say, mais je pas français, Tata, I speak French. I did my master's in law through French. She'd say, don't believe you. 
<laughs> I'd have to wheel out and I'd forgotten so much of it at that stage. And I'd have to recite the cousins who'd, you know, gone on to speak French and who'd, so all of that old, old trauma coming out. So, I, you know, some of it is hypervigilance. I think a lot of us who end up doing work like this uh, do so from, from the grief locker. But um, hopefully we don't bring that with us, you know, hopefully we don't bring that to the work. It informs that your drive and your your lust to do something to make things better for other people to you know to make sure this doesn't happen again whatever it is that you're you're working on but uh yeah it can it, sometimes it's yeah comes from a bad place no i i I couldn't agree with you more and i think there's so much more we won't do it today necessarily but i think there's so much to explore there cuz i know uh, I work with a lot of people who give a damn, uh, people that I've partnered with, friends of mine that have been, you know, that have gone through, whether it's, you know, they've been abused sexually by those in power or you just name your issue. Um, they are, they have this passion. They have this now, this suitcase full of skills, uh, this this toolbox full of skills that they're bringing along with them to tackle X, Y, or Z issue. And it comes primarily from, they're doing it. They, in other words, they probably wouldn't be doing it in the way they're doing it if they had not been hurt, if they yeah. had not been abused, if they had not been traumatized. So, you're you're very. It's a very astute observation that, that to to recognize that you and me and others that might run toward the bomb instead of away from it, like Nick, go save yourself and your your people, um, comes from a place of. And again, going back to what we talked about before we started recording, it, it comes from a place of of not wanting it to ever happen to someone else again, whether it's prison or abuse or school shootings or this pandemic or things that are happening mm. in the climate crisis. It comes from a place of this shouldn't happen anymore. So I'm going to give you know a, a percentage of my life, a percentage of my work to making sure it doesn't happen again, um, which is why I always say, and I'm very bad at it, but I always tell people that want to give a damn that it has to happen in this sequential order. Number one is you've got to give a damn about yourself. Mm. Before you start going out there and quote unquote saving the world, yeah. you've got to make sure that you're healthy. And then stage two is not go out there and save the world, quote unquote. The next step is give a damn about each other. Those are the people in your community. That's Those are your, your romantic partners, your children, your coworkers, the people you've chosen to let into your inner circle. Because they're going to pour into you, you're going to pour into them. It'll, there's this there's this constant cycle of like taking care of each yeah. other. Then only then should you go running toward the bomb. Yeah. Because the people that you're going to go save, they're not. It's not reciprocal. You're probably not going to get any gratitude, any help from those people. Uh, they're just going to take what you have to offer them. You know, you're coming yeah. to help them, and they're going to take it and not give anything back to you. So if you're in a bad place. You're going to spiral and you're going to get burnt out. But if you do it in this order, you have a better chance of being healthy yeah. on the other end. Yeah. You spiral and burn out, but also you bring your trauma to them. So if you're trying to care for people in order to fix something in yourself, and I, I've i learned this from lots of people, but I get to work with and be friends with an incredible Irishman called Colin O'Gorman, who's the head of Amnesty International here now. But I always think of him as the boy that sued the Pope. So he was one of the first people to um, speak out about being abused by a, a Catholic priest in Ireland and to be part of uh, prosecuting him. And 
then it turned out he wasn't, of course, the only one. And this started all of the yeah. um, truth and reconciliation uh, process that we've had here. But he talks about going and training as a therapist and the, the idea that by helping other people, you know, he would help other people heal in that way. And that he was lucky that the people he was training with said, uh-uh, not until you've sorted out your your own pain, you know. You, you're not going to be ready for that. And he had to he had to do that work. And he talks about how important it is to do that work. And I think that has probably been a really difficult thing in the last 18 months because I uh, really believe in process. I believe in support and supervision that you make sure that you're well, especially if you're working in trauma. Yeah, You know, whatever end of it, that you make sure that you're well on an ongoing basis. And um, but I've always found that that's that sort of work, um, important, fulfilling and that it didn't take from me. Um, people talk about vicarious trauma, but they don't talk often enough about vicarious resilience that by working with people who are going through something really difficult or have been through something really difficult, that you learn from their resilience. You know, you, you take some of it. And I really always felt that from when I was in my 20s. This year has been the first time that I have found it hard. And I have realized that what I thought was a sort of natural skill of mine or something to do with my personality wasn't, that it was contextual. It was because... I work with great lawyers who support me and we process stuff together, you know, obviously in a confidential way, but you're working with people on a team on a case. I work with people in the non-government sector, in the, in the work that I do with scientists and um, other people around the world who've been through what we've been through. And so the, on a daily basis, there's this form of kind of processing stuff. Yeah. And I think one of the hardest things about not only lockdown, but this physically distanced, even this limbo place that we're all in now is the lack of human connection because that really keeps us well. I mean, we we need it more than we need electricity, you know? Yeah, yeah we need, truly. We need it more than more than more than anything else. And so this this has been the the first time where I the first, yeah, the first time where I've I've found that hard. And I've had to really work at it, you know, and I've had to say, I'm, I'm maybe not coping with this that well at the moment and talk. And the minute I've said that, of course, you know, to a colleague or to, you know, somebody else, they've 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 come and helped. But you have to shout for it. Normally it's there. Well, at least I had managed to make a, a world where it was there for me. That's so true. I mean, I have seen so much hurt and it, both in the people that are very close to me and you know, people I've worked with throughout this year. And you're very right that before it was easier because you'd run into people, right? And those of us that, again, give a damn, you know, we don't ignore, we see somebody that looks a little off or is acting a little off. And we ask the question, how are you? No, no, no. I don't mean like you're like surface level bullshit. Like, how are you? Right. But if you're only seeing them on Zoom, right, where they can put on their like happy face before they hit, you know, turn on camera, or you're just not seeing them as often, um, you know, couple that with all of the stuff we're going through, not, not seeing people anyway. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a recipe for disaster. You really have to shout it out. You really have to reach out and say, I need help. Please help. 
And then it's not natural and organic. No. You know, normally, if 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 you and I were were meeting, there would be with others. You know, there would be that bit before everyone else arrives, or we'd meet on the subway, run into each other, and I'd ask how you are, and you might really tell me in a way that you wouldn't in a meeting, or you wouldn't over Zoom. You really can't over Zoom. You know, it just doesn't create that connection. And then I think that disconnection on top of whatever you're dealing with or working with that's that's difficult feels like another hurt. I don't know if you've experienced this when sort of uh, life started to open up again, but when you see somebody that's dear to you and that you love and you're maybe still not hugging and you've had all this sort of months of stuff that you feel, my friend described it, she sat down with me and another friend in a park last summer and she said, oh, I feel like we've had a row and that, you know, we've had an argument and that it, that we've, we've made up, but not enough. It's that yep. bit afterwards that's, that we're angry, you know, that we're upset with each other. And I said, yeah, you're, you know, you're probably upset that I wasn't there two months ago or that you weren't there when my mum died and, and we, none of us can do anything about that. But that's what we're, that's what we're feeling, you know, so we're very true. simple creatures. Yeah. <laughs> yes, very much. So I, I want to get to, in a minute, we're going to talk about uh, your incredible TED talk. When I met you first few months ago, you know, I always do a little bit of like internet re- reconnaissance when I meet someone that I'm really interested in. And, you know, I saw your your TED talk that you did with your partner, Mark. Uh, I'll get to that in a second because it's fantastic. And the whole story around it is just, I mean, you two are just incredible. I mean, the, all the things you all have been through, it's amazing. But before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit just briefly about some of the other career things you've done and the ways that you give a damn. You know, you mentioned earlier that your, your, your uh, uh, I guess, career or job, maybe not your main one, I don't know, you tell me, but as a, as, as a litigator or what we would call a trial, mm. trial lawyer, so you're helping people. What kinds of things, who are the kinds of people that you were trying to help? What kinds of things were you trying to tackle? I mean, you've been involved, you know, uh, in... Stand for Truth, this thing when the Pope came to Ireland in 2018. You have done so many different things in the social impact, social justice space, again, working on the pandemic this past year. Give us sort of a sense of what you've done, both as a career, as a litigator, but also just the other things you've been involved in. The you know Why are you doing that? And what are those things? Yeah, maybe, maybe the most useful way to do that is to... Uh, sort of describe it a little bit historically. I'm not going to give you my CV because it's really boring, but um, I always wanted to study law. A woman who became the first female president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, had became president when I was a child. And this was this huge thing. And I came from this feminist family, but really everyone was watching it. And that really was the, you can do whatever you want, you know, from a generation before my mother being told that um, if the only jobs available for women were a nurse or teacher, you had to stop doing that job if you got married. And why did she want to finish school or go to college? Because she was very attractive and she would have no trouble finding a husband. (laughs) So that, you know, that was, that was, that was my mom, you know, my mom worked and, and did all did all of those things and got married, but that that was how life was presented to her and she was not having that for us. But I, yeah, so I, I always wanted to study law and I did, and I did a master's in European law and I loved it. And then I uh, 
got a job in a big commercial firm and started to do that work. And I still do commercial litigation as um, as part of the work that I do. And I really enjoy it. But through my journey, sort of through work, I worked for a sort of boutique commercial practice that bought other practices and they sometimes would get a call from the law society and say this person has gone out of business or you know has died sometimes will you take over the files and we would have to take everything and so I was given this box of residential institutions redress board files which was the process that the government had set up for survivors of institutional abuse. So children mm. have been taken from their families, like my grandmother's story, you know, and put into these orphanages that weren't orphanages because often they had a parent that was still alive or sometimes two parents that were still alive um, or industrial schools. And I was not equipped to do that work, as in there's no training for meeting people like that. And it was the hugest privilege in my life, you know. I knew to reach out and ask sort of survivor organizations for help. I didn't want to do any further harm when I was taking these people's testimony for their, for their cases. But that really um, struck me then, Mm. really struck me then. And then I met, started doing a bit of family law at the same time and found that we are still perpetuating the same abuses in how we, think about the family as being the nuclear family only, how we deal um, with that when that ends, how we even talk about it, broken homes, and how we talk about uh, children who, who or families where there's divorce. And, and that really uh, stuck with me. So years later, after Mark's accident, which I think we'll talk about in a bit, I was still mainly working as a commercial litigator. And I it didn't sit with why I'd become, why I'd wanted to study law in the first place. Like all my, my masters, everything was to do with human rights, gender equality. Mary Robinson, before she was president, really shaped our constitution. She brought all of the cases that um, really made Ireland the incredible country that it, that it is now. And that was why I'd got into it. And so I, I left my job without another one to go to. I, I, I couldn't mm. figure out how to transition because it's a sort of strange thing to move into. And straight away, somebody that I know called me and asked me, would I do a piece of research for her organization on what women experience when they leave? So in domestic violence, society says why doesn't she just leave why doesn't she just leave we do this around the world victim blaming you learn that it's called but um and but what happens when she does leave and she meets the legal system what happens when she calls the police what happens when she um meets a judge what happens after that and so I decided I wanted that to be qualitative research I wanted to meet uh, these women and their advocates and find out what what it was like. And that became a piece of research that I did with Safe Ireland, which is the national uh, domestic violence um, NGO. And it's called the lawlessness of the home. And that, that was, uh, that report was published. And then that led to me going back into work very specifically in domestic violence in my practice to look at how practice 
could perhaps change for the better. How the rest of the people in society that people who when people who need them meet them, yeah. how they behave in that, like how there's how much of a damn do you give yeah. when when you know it's one of fifty cases you're running or it's one of a number of calls that your police station has received every week. Like how, how, how does that system that's set up supposedly to protect the most vulnerable people in society, how it reacts. So that, that became that the, the, the institutions work became this uh, working relationship and friendship with Colin McGorman, who uh, we created this event in five days called stand for truth. We had, Six, seven thousand people turned up when Dublin City was under lockdown because the Pope was visiting. And most of the country, it turns out, because not that many people went to see him say mass, were sitting going, how, how is this happening? How is this happening all these years after what happened when, when this process isn't finished, when the truth still isn't being told by the church? These people turned up um, to an event where we had we had people, incredible musicians who, who turned up and gave their time for for free to just create a space for people to stand in solidarity with those who'd experienced abuse in our country. It was really an incredible moment. So I was very privileged to have been there, able to do all of those things and keep working in, in my job, which I love still practice as a lawyer. It's really beautiful work. Um, there's so many places we could go there. One very off, this is kind of off topic, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. So, uh, you know, specifically, you've mentioned that some of your work, including this Stand for Truth um, event that took place that you guys threw together really quickly, ha had to do with going after um, the the lack of transparency within the Catholic church. How do you, are you religious or spiritual at all? Like, how do you, a lot of people wrestle with, I, and I, I am one of those people where I grew up in uh, the Christian, the Christian religion, and uh, I'm still hanging on by a thread. It looks much different now uh, than it did growing up. Thank God, because that was a very, uh, you know, I grew up in a very oppressive, oppressive fundamentalist, um, you know, just a bajillion rules. And it was very, very, it was, a, it was a horrible place to grow up in, but I haven't left it yet because I still think there's something there. Right. And so I, I talk a lot on the podcast and off the podcast with people about this idea of, you know, th do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? Is there some redeeming quality to this? Right. Um, so specifically with the Catholic church, uh, in your story, how do you reconcile those? Are you kind of a person that's like, no, I don't want anything to do with it? Or do you see some good in it and just want there to be the transparency so we can, you know, you know, so so the church could be what it truly is supposed to be, or there is no redeeming quality? Where do you stand in all of that? I know it's a big question, but, um, and I know it's out of left field because we weren't really talking about religion or spirituality, but um, yeah, I'll just dump that huge one uh, on you and see where you go with it. How long do you have, Nick? <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll give us a, a snapshot here and then we'll come back to it in a different episode, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm an agnostic, I suppose. I'm not uh, arrogant enough to say that I'm an atheist. And I think there's a huge amount of theocracy in atheism also. I, 
I think everybody is spiritual. I think people have a soul. I think there's part of us that needs to believe in something that is bigger than ourselves. If not, you're in existential angst the whole time. And so I feel connected to nature. I feel connected to other human beings. Um, I grew up with a lot of Bible also because my mother was uh, Catholic, Maronite Catholic, and my father was Protestant. And I said earlier, Ireland is a was a largely white country with one religion. We still had a war for how long between Catholics and Protestants, which is, you know, well, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I won't I won't describe yeah. it. But um, so I and and we were, but we were primarily taught to choose and given the right to choose. So I had to go to I went to a Protestant uh, junior school, you know, until I was twelve but had to take extra Catholic religion, religion lessons. So I'd read some, and also I'm a curious person and I was a very serious child. So I read the Bible from cover to cover. And then about a week before I was due to be confirmed in the church, I asked my mother to drive me to the priest's house to tell him that I wasn't doing it that I couldn't, wow. I couldn't do the, the vows. And he really put the nail in the coffin by spending that time I was crying in his sitting room, convincing me that I just had to go through the motions of the ceremony or else it would upset my family <laughs> and that I didn't have to take the vows rejecting Satan. And I can't remember what else they asked children to do, but all of that, all of that kind of stuff. So that was sort of the beginning of the end for me at about 12 or 13 uh, of organized religion. I I think, you know, that the Roman Empire didn't end. It just became the Catholic Church and that the world has been colonized by patriarchy. I think there's this hierarchical structure that is not human, that is not collective, that is not who we are, it is not tribal, where it says that the the head of the village is the priest or equivalent, you know, normally a man, normally white, normally, yep. you know, yep. I don't mean when you say patriarchy, people think you're just talking about gender equality. I mean, it's across sexuality and color and wealth and privilege. And the the church really enforced that in Ireland and, and across the world and still is. And I can't have anything to do with that. The suffering that, that comes from trying to organize people in a way that's just runs counter to our interdependence, our understanding of our interdependence and the joy of that, of, of, of the collective, of the circle, when that's destroyed and made into this, this pyramid, you know, where there's only a few at the top and you're in this constant fight for getting there is what's causing climate change, the pandemic of violence against women, you know, more women and girls are abused and killed in the world than people who have, you know, typhoid, cholera, COVID, cancer, HIV, it's um, and it's it's largely perpetuated through institutional religion, and so I I vow to dismantle patriarchy brick by brick for as long as I'm alive. And so my associations with religion uh, with with that are 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 just not good, you know. Yeah, that's not to say that I I 
critical of people of faith, or people who find comfort in the church, people, whichever church it is, whatever their faith is, their, their practice. But when you have, as my Irish grandmother described to me, the local priest calling at the, her, the woman who lived next door to her was Catholic, telling her it was time to have another baby when she was in her 40s. My God. Yeah. You know, no. It's it's so tough, right? Because, again, I told you, like, I, I, had a, I have a good friend of mine who w- was a Christian for many, many years. And he left the faith and now describes himself similarly to what you said, like not arrogant enough to be atheist, so agnostic is where it is right now. And he was like, he, he literally looked at me in the eyes and was like, why are you still, like, what reason, you've already said that you don't agree with, you know, all these things about what you were part of before. So why are you still in? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. Like, there's still some things that I love about mm. There's, I, I do feel connect. I do feel, find some peace and comfort. I think Jesus is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Je- Jesus in particular, not all the people that took what Jesus did and made it the shit show that it is today. And I'm like, dude, believe me, more times than I can count in the last four or five years, I have tried to leave it and I can't. So I'm reluctantly in for now. But it, but it is interesting because, yeah, if it's not one or two priests or pastors, right? It's thousands. And it spans thousands of years. It's not a. It's not one time in history that it's got really shitty and they started doing shitty things. No, no. This is. It is an integral part of the system. Is yeah. you you put these people in charge, they think that they have this. Th- 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 well, not they think they do have this overwhelming amount of authority and control. And when you give someone that much control, uh, 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 by and large, they do shitty things with it. So. You know, I, I being in, in the pro, being Protestant right now, you know, yeah, pastor upon, I have so many stories of sexual abuse, of physical abuse, of emotional abuse, of spiritual abuse, and the same thing in the Catholic Church, and the same thing in Islam, and the same thing mm-hmm. in Hinduism, and the same thing in mm-hmm. Taoism, and like, it's not, again, it's not just Protestant, Protestant Catholic. When you put someone, and you give someone that amount of authority, they do bad things with it, right? Like, mm-hmm. by yeah. and large. Um, yeah. it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on, on the Jesus thing. Uh, uh, he would be appalled. <laughs> yes. Jesus, oh. Jesus, Jesus was a, Jesus was a, a hippie, a gender equal socialist, um, never said anything about homophobia, like how they've managed to, I mean, know your own Bible. <laughs> you yes. Know? I remember when yeah. I was canvassing for marriage equality here, there were some very strange doors, but one of them was about a, a relatively young, obviously Christian um, woman who said, the Bible says that homosexuality is evil. And I said, where? You know, she said, and I'm a Christian. And I said, where? And she mentioned something, uh, I can't remember which part of the Old Testament. And I said, yeah, but your your Bible is the New Testament. Where did Jesus say that? And watching her realize that nowhere and then where did that come from like where am i who am i hearing that who's who's translating this for me you know and and so much bad has been has been done in his his in his name you know it's yeah. it's, it's such a shame because i'm yeah. with you like all of those stories are 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 useful like the the bible stories where they first appeared and like the myths and legends from around the world you know you, there are versions of 
of that story everywhere were were used for for good for people to understand they, they were early psychology you yeah. know and philosophy um for people to to live by so i think a lot of it is hugely useful maybe that's maybe it's not a matter like for you of leaving or staying but taking from it what's useful yeah for you and what's good for you and not being so worried about that you know yeah I didn't give back my baptism or my any of those things. And in fact, when my mum died in the pandemic, we couldn't get a priest because all of them are very old in Ireland. Everyone was cocooning quite rightly. And myself and my sisters did the service in the church for, for my mother. The priest in the hospital wouldn't come in the last, um, or couldn't come, I don't know, in the last sort of hours of her life when we knew it was the last day. And uh, eventually an, an um, Indian um, nun uh, came. And between us, we did the last rites because we Amazing. knew that that's what my yeah. mom would, would want. And we did it ourselves. And there was something really powerful about taking back our human rights, as in R-I-T-E-S, the yeah. rights of death. You know, you realize suddenly... They do the weddings, they do the, the baby is born, they do the all of these things that are vital to human co- uh, community and family and love and these moments that are important were, were, were taken by this central sort of power structure. And while at first we felt a bit abandoned when we realized well, there's huge power in this, we can, we can, we can do this for our mother. You know, she, she gave us life. She grew us in her body. She brought us into the world. We can help her leave it, you know? Oh my God, make myself cry. Mm. Um, yeah. So that, Yeah. Yeah, it's very beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you got to sort of like take some of that back by, you know, giving the last rites with this Indian nun to your mom with your sisters. That's, that's uh, maybe there's some healing in there for you. And I appreciate you indulging me for a moment on the whole religion spirituality thing because I, yeah, it's such a it, yeah. You come from a deeply you you live in a very deeply like religious country, right? Again, mm-hmm. Catholic and and I have so many. I have Catholic priests that are good friends of mine that I love. I have so many Catholic and Protestant, you know, churches and people and leaders that are the best people that I know on the planet. And I just, and, and I, yeah, I like the, I, I like what you said about like, maybe and I try not to focus on it too much. I try to take it day by day. Um, we're training our children, you know, we're not training them to be Christians. We're training them to be really good people. And you know, we're pointing them to, and, and, and because we do participate in some Christian and Catholic things in our home, they, they see stuff. Um, and, and they know generally what we're about, but that's not my job, right? My job is to point out the good things that are happening in the world and say, what do you think about that? And to point out the bad things that are happening in the world and say, what do you think about that? Let's process through that. Um, that's the best way that I can be a parent, not to superimpose the things I believe or may not believe on them, because that's, that fucked me up growing up, like in a bad way to be like, Mm. oh, you're automatically going to believe these things because I believe them as your father, as your mother. Um, that that's taken me decades to get away from and and figure out, figure out who I am. 
it's indoctrination and it's frightening. You know, those things are frightening for a, for a child. You know, as much as it's a comfort to believe that there's a heaven. You know, my my nieces when my mom died, it was you could see it in action. You know, it was really comforting for them to think that she had gone somewhere else. Then we couldn't uh, have a proper funeral. You know, we had a small service in the church by the crematorium, and we brought her ashes home because we wanted to wait until there was family around and friends around who hadn't had the opportunity or watching us on Skype do this, you know, service that we did ourselves. Yeah. Um, and so we then didn't want to put her in the, after nearly crying, we make you laugh. We didn't want to put her in the closet. Like, where do you, yeah. where, do you where do you put the urn of ashes? And so I made a little sort of altar on the kitchen shelves beside her spice cupboard. And we found some, you know, religious things. She had the, the Black Madonna little yep. thing from a church somewhere of the Black Madonna. And and so she's in the kitchen. So every morning when, you know, we're there in her house, my sister and her kids are, are living there at the moment, which is wonderful because we're all, you know, at home and we're cooking. You know, she's there and you you can sort of talk to her. So now we think we're never going, we're going to just carry her around wherever wherever we go. And, you know, I think, yeah, just do it your own way. You know, yeah. one of the good things that have, has come out of this pandemic is, you know, fuck all of that. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. There's been a lot of fuck all of that over the past yeah. year and a half. Like what's yeah. really, what really matters in life, right? Like oh, what's... I've, I've been to so many friends' funerals or their parents' funerals. And it's like a, it's like a, an ad break for the church you know they're trying yeah. they can see that the room is full of people who aren't there every sunday because actually ireland church um attendance really dropped after the abuse scandal i mean it, i can't remember the numbers now but really not quite overnight but close to it just wow disappeared um, and they see them and you're there to to grieve and mourn somebody that really mattered to you or mattered to your friends and irish people do death really really well I and mean, we really know how to process it how to be together we wake people at home you know the bodies in the sitting room you might be up till three o'clock in the morning with people coming to pay their respects wow it's it's a really really beautiful thing and but then you have this hour-long church service that is a, a sales pitch for the church and not about the eulogy for the person that's done by the family has to be done when the mass is over Goodness it's so, it's so it's so wrong it's so wrong and it's such a terrible terrible shame and we still don't really have alternative spaces for that but maybe that's what will come out of the pandemic and certainly stand for truth felt like that while mass was being said in the phoenix park we were having not a rally not a protest not you know it was there was never a question of placarding and and being at the gates as the pope arrived we had full respect for people who went there for comfort sure. but we knew we needed to create a space for people to whom Ireland had not been hospitable because of the power of of the the church and the how entwined the church and the state were and they turned up I mean it was it was it was incredible that's wild um I've taken so much of your time. You've been so great. I do want to spend a couple minutes, if you have a little more fuel in your tank, oh, to no, talk I, about I, this. I, Nick, I'm. It just. I. I feel like you and I are just having a chat. So we I'm are. Sorry and, if and, I've, and everybody. If no, no. I've this is good. On, no, no, no. You have on. not. It's been so good. And 
and this is how they usually go. Um, I'm not interested in doing interviews. I'm interested in having conversations. Um, so anybody listening knows this is how things go. But I just know that you're. I want to, you know, be aware that you're. You're. It's a close. It's approaching the ten o'clock hour over where you are. Um, but so a few years ago, you gave this. Um, again, it was one of my first introductions to who you are and the work that you're doing. Uh, you gave this incredible TED talk. Uh, it's had millions of views at this point. Um, and you gave it alongside your partner, Mark. Uh, the TED Talk was called A Love Letter to Realism in a Time of Grief. And it's mainly about, among other things, it's about your relationship, you know, how and when you met Mark and the things that he had already been through and the things that he went through after you all were friends and together and, you know, leading up to the present day, all all the the, the physical and the, uh, uh, the emotional mountains you all have traversed together. Um, so give us a talk about that Ted talk. I want, I'm going to link to it. Obviously I want everybody to go watch it. They don't even need me to link it. They know how to Google, go Google it. It'll show up on Ted. It's on YouTube, but kind of give a, you don't have to talk about the, the Ted talk as much as give us a, a snapshot of your relationship and the things that you two have gone through. Because again, any number of other people, you know, having gone through these things, it wouldn't have worked out because it's been really fucking hard, right? And and there was even the time in the TED Talk when you, you, there was a time when he, Mark gave you an out. He said, you can go. Like, you didn't sign up for this. Yeah. And you stayed. And and so talk about that, uh, your relationship in that TED Talk for a minute. Well, getting to speak at TED was just an incredible opportunity it was just an incredible privilege and I got to meet people like Barton Day Thurston who you who you interviewed before so meeting that community he and I were on a, a TED trip to Montgomery Alabama to see the slavery museum and to the lynching memorial there that Brian Stevenson the, the human rights lawyer the civil rights lawyer built um and his TED talk is one that anybody who gives a damn should go and it's incredible it's stunning I I think I I think I'm responsible for maybe 50,000 of his six million views or 10 million that. views whatever he, whatever he has I put it on every now and then when I need uh, um inspiration and in fact I have, I've one of his his books on my shelf here for that but it, that was an incredible opportunity in particular because the TED talk is also about the science that we got involved in and how and the citizen science kind of project that we decided to build out of our, our uh, well, out of need, really, um, which has been useful for this pandemic, too. So I, I met Mark um, in my late 20s through a friend and I had been living in Spain, in Madrid for a couple of years and was very fond, I still am, of dancing till about seven o'clock in the morning, which is how you party in Madrid. You go for dinner at 10 p.m. It's the opposite of New York and most of America. You go for dinner at 10 p.m. and you go to the pub at about 1 p.m. and then you go to the nightclub at 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. Yeah. I mean, yep. 3 a.m., all a.m.s. And then you uh, finish with breakfast and um, churros and chocolate and churros at seven o'clock or eight o'clock. You're you're really a Madrilenian when your chocolate and churros bartender knows your order. Yeah, there you so go. Someone told me that early on and that was that was my aim. So when I, I came back, I met Mark through a friend and Mark was blind. He was an, a, an athlete. He had road crew for 
Ireland and then lost his sight. He had detached retinas and had lost his sight when he was 22. And he had gone back rowing. He'd won Commonwealth Games medals and then had become a, an adventure athlete. So he did all these crazy things like a marathon at the North Pole and a, from Everest Base Camp, the highest marathon in the world, the lowest in the uh, Dead Sea Ultramarathon in, in Jordan. And he wanted to learn how to dance. So Mark just, you know, things that are hard for a blind guy to do, uh, he wanted to he wanted to do and was also interested in doing things that terrified him. And as an Irish man, he had always, you know, hidden from the dance floor. So I taught him how to dance with another uh, friend of mine. And we became friends for a long time and eventually became a couple. And he... On the 10th anniversary of, of going blind, he did this incredible race that took a year to put together, which was the first race to the South Pole on the centenary of, of the Scott and Shackleton or the Amundsen and Scott, um, the yeah, Scott and Amundsen race to the South Pole. So he did that, came back and we got engaged and we were um about to be married. We were four weeks away from our wedding and Mark was staying with some friends in the UK, in England. And he, we think, we don't know, but we think he got up to go to the bathroom during the night and the window in his room had been left open and it was a low casement window. And he tipped out the window and fell, I think what you guys call three stories yeah, or two stories. Yeah, yeah three stories. Fell, uh, and hit the ground below really horribly. His He'd gone home early and his all of his closest friends, the guy he used to row in the boat with, were sitting on the patio having wine, having drinks. They'd just flown over from Ireland and he landed beside them in his, in his boxers, you know. My God. It was, it was awful. Um, so I got the call at about 5 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and luckily I was staying at my sister's house and I was told he'd had an accident and I needed to come, come quickly. And my sisters organized a flight to, to London and then both came with me. I'm, I'm in the middle of three girls and they're fantastic. And they just packed a bag. I couldn't breathe. I was uh, so terrified and upset. I, I mean, I didn't, I think I asked my friend around, is he going to die? And she didn't answer me. Mm. And she said he hurt his back. And I said to her, I, I don't want, please don't tell me any more than that. And I don't want anyone else to tell me because I then thought other people might ring. And she said, okay. And she went around and told, she doesn't want to know. Because I knew actually to what we started talking about, I knew I had to run towards that bomb and the pull back under the duvet was so huge to, to not go. Like in that fight or flight, that awful bit where you feel like throwing up, the, 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 the pull to just get back into bed was too much. Like I remember at one stage when my, when my um, sister was packing my bag and the other sister had found the flights and the first flight out of Dublin wasn't until... 7 a.m. or 8 a.m., you know, we had to wait. She said, well, look, we're not in any rush. We'll leave in 20 minutes. And I was standing there. I said, what am I going to? I actually went and got back into bed and realized, oh, I could just stay here. I could, I could pretend this isn't happening. 
and got got myself the hell out of that bed like really fast. It was yeah. it was it was awful. So so Mark ended up being in intensive care in in acute care for six seven months. He'd broken his back, fractured his skull, bleeds on his brain. First two weeks they thought he had a tear in his aorta, which might burst at any time, and he might um, he might die. And then when they put the scaffolding into his back we didn't you don't know for the first 12 weeks after someone injures their spine if they're going to be permanently paralyzed or not everyone tells that story is the sort of doctors told me I would never walk again that doesn't happen it's 12 weeks some people go into spinal shock and they can't feel their legs but then they get some movement back and so there's this waiting so I think I said to you at the beginning I've had some um, experience of how to uh, measure out how much grief and trauma you feel so that your heart doesn't fully break, yeah, you know, yeah. like how to, how to not lose your mind. And I also knew that he need as awful as this was for me, however awful it could be for me, he was blind and now possibly paralyzed and possibly about to die. And that I needed to keep my shit together. Yeah. No matter, no matter what, you know, no matter what. So when when he said to me, as we talk about in the TED talk, uh, when he tried to break up with me when he was in intensive care, I I said no and got very annoyed with him. Mostly because no matter what, even if I were to leave, even if we were to break up, even if this was too much to ask for anybody, I wasn't going to go until, <laughs> you know, until... I knew he was able for yeah. that yeah. and that I was able for that, like for that other big life change, not, you know, four weeks before when. And also, as I say to him now, what was I going to do? Go and get my handbag from the family room and get on a cheap flight home and sign up to, I don't even know if they had Tinder then, but, you know, sign up to some dating app and find myself some other fella. Like it just, yeah. you know, it's just, that was impossible. That was, that that, that wasn't possible. Maybe, you know, it would have been understandable, but it, it wasn't possible for me. So he, he eventually recovered, as in he didn't die. The brain injury turned out not to um, have changed who he was um, or caused him any problems, but he was permanently paralyzed from the waist down. And I also, uh, the bit that didn't go into the grief locker then was the hope, I suppose. And that translated into my research. I started sitting in the hospital, you know, seven days a week beside beside his bed while he was figuring out if he was going to die or not. I started to look at what Christopher Reeve, the American actor who played Superman, had done with the science community to search for the cure for paralysis and develop the cure for paralysis, what the foundations around the world had been doing, what was close to breakthrough, what was going to be another 10 or 20 years away. And because I didn't have any money, you know, neither of us were earning um, at the time, friends were helping us out, family and all of that. But it was sort of, I couldn't pay $35 for every science journal article I needed yeah. to read, the ones behind paywalls. So I started emailing the scientists saying, hi, I'm sitting in ICU. I'd love to read your work. And they sent them to me. And I started building relationships with them then. People I then met, you know, some of them two years after when we went on this, what we originally called Sea Mom's World Tour of 
paralysis. <laughs> I decided what we should do when we when we got out of the hospital was literally to go and just knock on these people's doors and say, how can we be of service to you? So Mark had a like decent public profile in Ireland. There were people in because of the he's a, a professional speaker. He talks to companies about resilience and you know through his adventures that he's done. And so he, you know, people also around the world, there were enough people that 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 knew us, knew him yeah. at the time. And so that's what we started to do. And then that ended up in uh, becoming this N of one study, this this pilot study looking at spinal electrical stimulation with this incredible robotic exoskeleton that Mark walks in with a professor in, in UCLA. And that has now uh, uh, become an incredible merger between two companies. And we're hoping to see these devices coming out to market um, in the next three or four years. So, yeah. Is that so a much like, there. Why, sorry. Yeah. It's very, very hard to, um, yeah, describe God 10 years. He's 10 years injured now. Yeah. You, you covered, you covered, uh, you know, enough for now. I mean, I, I just am so just utterly impressed by the two of you. I mean, even before Mark was paralyzed, just all the things he did as a blind man like all the races, all of the feats that, I mean, most, most perfectly capable humans will never, ever do, you know, a, a hundredth of those things. And he did those at, so there's already this like tremendous amount of resilience, right. And this tremendous amount of strength. And then to go through this traumatic experience and, you know, his resilience, it's, it's really just beautiful to see the two of you interact, you know, on stage at Ted, um, and I'm so glad that the brain injury did not result in him losing to put how you like he didn't lose who he was because there's so much wisdom and so much to learn from, you know, yeah. his life yeah. and experiences. And then the two of you together, right? Like I'm, we just, we, my wife and I just celebrated our thir 13th anniversary uh, yesterday. And oh, congratulations. Thank you. And it's just so when two things, when two people fit, right? I don't believe in soulmates. Um, I think, you know, life is too complicated for that. But I do believe that two people can fit and two people can work together really, really, really well. My wife and I, after hours of um, not talking to each other the other day, we both sent each other, we were both Googling the same thing at the same time. And no, 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 actually, let me, re she tweeted, she Instagrammed something. And I said, you've got to be shitting me. And I showed her that I, and it was some sort of like play on words. And I was tweeting something with the same play on words that she was doing. We had not <laughs> talked about it like ever. It was just something that I was thinking about. And I was like, oh, that would be a funny tweet. And then she sent me a link to something she had posted. Like just to see though, like that's, that's just a beautiful, like weird serendipitous, like kind of a thing. But it's like you just know you're supposed to be with that person, right? Because you do yeah. weird things like this, right? It's just these like reminders that, okay, Becky is, you know, we're, we're supposed to be together to see you, you, you both sort of like, and you know, uh, yeah, it's just really beautiful to see you two like growing and working together and the, the kinds of things you both are discovering, the things you're working on again, not just selfishly trying to fix what Mark is going through, right? Like Mark needs to walk. Let's figure that out. 
but also trying to use it to the, you know, to the advantage of greater humanity. Like how can we fix, how can we get Mark to walk and move and also do this for other people, right? Um, yeah. And like the, the irony of it is that this particular device, which is really the closest thing to a really meaningful therapy, the word cure is very kind of um, loaded for all right. of the reasons. You know, what does that what does that mean? Um, but it is uh, it's incredible and it will make uh, a huge difference to like the vast majority of paralyzed people's lives and those who are have worse injuries than him, so are paralyzed from the neck down, can't scratch their own nose, you know. Um, it it will work least well on Mark because he has a very particular type of injury. So the part of the spine that it works best on is damaged in him also. It's mm. not where he's paralyzed from. And when we realized that, we realized, because of course you're constantly questioning, you know, is this an entirely selfish, self-propelled um endeavor that we're on you know a hunt that we're on uh, specifically for him and it was in realizing that it wouldn't be as effective for him or maybe not work at all for him made no difference to what both of us wanted to do we saw it we understood it to be incredibly frustrating that this um this breakthrough was sitting on the bench in, in a university lab and was yeah. not on the shelf in a doctor's office. It needed to be on the shelf in a doctor's office. And that became the focus. Like, how can we be most useful to this getting out to as many people as possible, the guys who were in the hospital with him that we knew personally, but also all of the strangers, you know, all the people around the world we didn't know. And then after we did the TED Talk um, Obviously, millions, millions of people have watched it, but we got hundreds of emails and messages and not just from the paralyzed community, from people who had been through stuff who were or now just trying to figure out their own resilience. Like, how do you people struggling with optimism? And actually, in this pandemic, it's become a really toxic word. It's like freedom. It was taken by people who mm. wanted to do bad things and used, you know, be more optimistic about the vaccine. Well, no, could we be realistic about the vaccine? Yeah. It's great, but without all of these other things, it's not going to save us. So can we look at these other things? Oh no, you're, you know, you're not being optimistic enough. Um, and so we, yeah, we've just met all these incredible people through it, and I've, it's been it's been hard. You know, it's been hard work. There were times where there wasn't enough sleep happening, and where we were, we were struggling to even, you know be friends with each other or work together it was there was there were some really difficult years because there just wasn't enough of us or enough yeah, you know yeah money to get help or all of those things but um uh it all came it all came good you know it's um yeah it's been I don't it always bothers me when I hear people say they were glad the bad thing happened because of all that they've learned or been able to do and I think that's sort of put into their minds by a certain media narrative. I think that's unfair. I would never wish this on anybody. I would never wish for anybody's child to die. I would never wish for anybody to go through um, a catastrophic injury like that. So if we could have the magic wand and not to have happened, I would wish that. But um, aside from the really difficult things we've we've met and we've met incredible people and have been able to help 
people do some really incredible work and that's that's been very exciting yeah i'm so i'm so excited to link to a bunch of this stuff in the show notes so that people can go so that this is not their only encounter with you i want them to learn more about what you're doing let's wrap up with uh this question what are you i know again we're still fully realizing that we're still in a pandemic and most of the world remains unvaccinated and not doing the right thing uh so we're not out of this yet but as we look toward the future and what's sort of happening, what's sort of evolving, what are you most excited about? Are you excited um, as you continue to evolve and how you give a damn and why you give a damn? What are you excited about? Hmm. And if you're not, it's okay to say that. I am hopeful that we will learn during this pandemic because I think it's still during, I don't think it's over. Yeah. That we will learn that we didn't, as a, as a world, that we did not handle this right. And we will learn how to handle it right for the good of everybody, ourselves included. I mean, ourselves in the West, Europe, the US, Canada, countries that have, um, who have not done the right thing for the world or for their own people and that we will learn from that so that we actually get out of this pandemic that we're in and also so that we are prepared for the next because it will come i mean this was predicted we yeah. we knew this was yeah. we knew this was coming and we weren't prepared to not be prepared a second time and what if the next virus is worse than this one what if SARS-CoV-2 hooks up with MERS and we end up with something that's truly, truly uncontrollable, you know. Um, we need to be able, we need to be able to do this. And the bigger threat, you know, that we're all witnessing right now, which is climate change. Yep. You know, we've, we've yep. had the strangest weather in Ireland. I have mosquito bites, you know, it's it's really if for people who haven't been able to fathom it on a scientific level or understand it in that way. I think people between the wildfires and, you know, our people are, 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 are seeing it up close and, and we really need to be able to take that on. And I think that suffers from the same sort of um, cognitive dissonance, all of the issues that, that we've seen around the pandemic, you know, oh, well, with hindsight, we wouldn't have opened to Christmas. Well, we had hindsight. This was predicted by mathematical yep. modelers. You yep. did it anyway, and yep. these people are now dead. You know, that we we know how we're living is is not sustainable. You know, so I have no desire to go back to normal. Excited is a strange word. Yeah. Because I can't, you know, I can't quite. I'm I'm excited that we still might see the best of us in this. Yeah. We haven't yet. We've seen it in New Zealand and we've seen it in Taiwan and we've seen it in Australia. And we've seen it in the Atlantic bubble in Canada, those parts of the world that said, as Jacinda Ardern, the leader of New Zealand said, pursuing a living with COVID strategy would have made or herd immunity would have meant tens of thousands of New Zealanders dying. And I would not tolerate that. Yeah. That is incredible leadership. Yeah. That is has meant that my friends in New Zealand for the last 18 months have been going to music festivals, things that used to excite me, right? So the things that sort of their kids have been in school, they haven't been in lockdown, they haven't had to, 
watch funerals on their phone, you know. Um, I, up, I upgraded, a, four people close to me died this year, and I upgraded to from watching funerals on my phone at home on my own to watching them in the car outside the church with all the other cars with people sitting watching the funeral that was happening inside on their phone. I mean, how? All the, the, the wealth and the privilege. Did we do this? And then what are we doing to the rest of the world yeah. that doesn't have our capacity to do this? I mean, it's morally and ethically uh, so wrong. And so I am excited that we may decide that we're going to turn this large ship around and and do the right thing and to really properly properly end it um, and be ready for the next one and then look at these 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 issues that we we have to tackle, you know. I'm glad you're hopeful, and hmm. I'm glad and I'm glad to know you. Um, Simon George, uh, human rights lawyer, activist, TED speaker, damn giver extraordinaire. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story about your family, about your work. Um, I admire you. I'm learning from you. And uh, I'm glad that you came on the show to share with the Let's Give a Damn family. So thank you. Oh, Nick, thank you so much. It's been such a lovely conversation. I'm just... Wish this was in real life. I know. I could, will, I could give you a hug and we could keep talking. We'll do it you, in real life at some point. Yeah, I was thinking at several points during our conversation, I was like, man, we need to do more of this offline. Like, I don't have time to talk with a lot of people, you know, just like shoot the shit. It's yeah. just busy. Life is busy. But I was like, I could do that with Simon. Like, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of things we need to dive into at some point. So, well, uh, if, you this, know. if this does end and I get back to America, we will find the nearest uh, Latino dance club and we will dance till seven o'clock in the morning. I would love it. I am a terrible dancer. You need a teacher. Yay, even better. <laughs> That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with Simon and me today. To learn more about Simon's life and work, visit simongeorge.com. And to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for being here today. I'm grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>